The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Lord, thank you this morning for the blessings that you give us every day. And this morning, the blessing that is on my mind is that of rain. Uh, Lord, we've been so dry, and uh, the reservoirs around us, the lakes, are, are really strikingly low. And even after the snow that we had, Lord, still very low. So we thank you for giving us water, which is life for us, and we just want to take time to thank you. And, and Lord, we pray that now as we assemble for worship, as we assemble to study your word, that you would give us grace as well. Lord, we know there are many needs. There are families that are sick. Uh, think about Eric Kaufman and his uh, kids, as Nathan just mentioned, that they're sick. And lots of families have been affected with the flu, and we pray for healing in, in our community, in our church. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would strengthen those that are suffering. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would gather us uh, later for corporate worship, that we would come together and sing and praise you and, and give you glory and hear your word. But now, Lord, we have this time to study Christian contentment. We pray that you give us grace to study and to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, hope all of you got a, uh, a handout on the excellence of Christian contentment as we continue to walk through uh, this book that Jeremiah Burroughs gave us on the topic of Christian contentment. Um, basic idea this morning is that we will learn to esteem Christian contentment and see the, the beauty of it and the excellence of it and, and that we would desire it and pursue it in prayer. Next week, um, I probably shouldn't say this because now you're not going to want to come, but next week's going to be a much more negative topic, uh, which is the, um, the evils of a murmuring, complaining spirit. So if you want to skip BFL, that would be, I guess, the one to skip, but I would urge you not to do it. And I was just commenting a moment ago as I was reading through that chapter last night. Uh, one of the reasons is that we might see in actuality how much we struggle with contentment, how given we are to complaining. And so the, the, these two chapters together, the excellence on the one side so that we're, our hearts are attracted after it. And then on the other uh, hand, the, the, the darkness, the moral darkness of complaining and murmuring and, and that we would hate it. These are the two patterns of ethics and ethical motivation in the Bible. Uh, attraction and repulsion, things that we're drawn after and we want, and then things that we hate and that we're fleeing from. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, these uh, two weeks. But this morning, the excellence of Christian contentment. So just by way of review, as we do every week, uh, the basic scripture I would give you, if you're going to talk about Christian contentment, I go to Philippians chapter 4 where Paul is talking to the Philippians about the money that they sent him, and he's thankful for the money. He's writing them to say thank you. He's rejoicing in it. But he wants them to understand he's not rejoicing in the money per se. He wants them to know that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. He's learned the secret of, of, of Christian contentment. It's a secret that is to be learned, and he's learned it. And the money is not the secret of his contentment. No earthly circumstances, but I can do everything through him who strengthens me. Through his relationship with Christ, he has abiding contentment. So that's Philippians 4. And then we went from that into Jeremiah Burroughs' uh, book, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which we're more or less following uh, since then with other things mixed in. 
And he gives us this uh, definition. Can someone uh, recite the definition uh, from memory? Um, I'm kidding. Uh, would somebody be willing to read it off the, uh, the handout for us this morning? Phenomenal uh, definition. It's a frame of spirit. It's a demeanor, an attitude, a heart state. It gives us four descriptions, sweet, inward, quiet, and gracious. It's sweet as opposed to bitter or sour. It's an inner thing. It's not an acting job. It's not an external show like a whitewashed tomb looks beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. But instead, it's a true inward work of God's grace. It's a quiet spirit. Uh, so it's opposed to the roiling, kind of churning, rebellious spirit like a storm. But it's quiet under the hand of God, and it's a gracious spirit, meaning it's something that can only be achieved by the sovereign grace of God. Uh, and the key to everything is God's wise and fatherly disposal or his decrees concerning you, his decisions concerning you, uh, that you would actually expand a sense of the doctrine of providence, that there's no part of your life that's not been pondered in, in that anthropomorphic way of speaking. God doesn't ponder things. He just knows. All right. He doesn't work things out. You know that, don't you? That God doesn't work things out. I've been thinking about this for a while and finally it came to me. That doesn't happen with God. But we think of it that way in a, in a human way of speaking, that God has worked out or pondered every aspect of your life and has come to decisions about you in every case. Every single moment of your life has been thought of and has been decreed. That's what disposal means. And it's wise and fatherly. The things that God decides about you are very wise. Wiser than you. <laughs> Wiser than you would do. And uh, he is fatherly toward you. Could have said kingly, that would have been fine, but fatherly shows that affection, that heart of love that a father has for his children in every condition. So basically you're going to submit to it freely, you're going to yield to it and bow down under it and not fight it, but actually delight in it as you will do in heaven. I guarantee you're going to delight in everything God did in your life when you get to heaven. There'll not be a single aspect that you will regret. Nothing you will say, that could have been done better. The thing is, can you do that now by faith? It's not easy to do, but can you do it now by faith? So that's the definition. We've walked through it many times. Now this morning we're going to talk about the excellence of Christian contentment. The basic idea is the more that we prize Christian contentment as a rare jewel and as a treasure of inestimable worth, the more that we're going to pursue it and sacrifice in order to attain it the more vigorously we'll fight every day to protect it from Satan's attack. So Christian contentment is a, is a valuable or excellent state of being. It is desirable, it is delightful, it is wonderful to have this state of Christian contentment. We should see Christian contentment as somewhat like a treasure hidden in a field or that pearl of great price, that fine pearl. Could someone read Matthew 13 for us, 44 through 46? Okay. Now, last time we talked about the treasure hidden in the field, and that's uh, one aspect. How would you say that these two parables, which teach basically in some ways the same thing, uh, a treasure of inestimable valuable, value that is worth everything you have to obtain, how would you say that the, that the second parable is a little bit different than the first? Look at the individual the one who finds treasure hidden in a field, as opposed to the merchant. What, what would you say are, are different differences between them? Okay, the joy isn't mentioned, although I don't think we'd be shocked to find that the merchant is filled with joy as he sells his entire stock, his store, his stock of other pearls to get this one pearl. That's right, I, I would say that's exactly where I'm heading. It's a matter of intentionality. In the second case, the merchant is looking specifically for fine pearls and finds one, right? 
And the other, the guy's just, I get the feeling like he's digging a hole. <laughs> you know, He's just going about his life and then suddenly finds the treasure. <clears throat> so I would like you to consider the second. Uh, consider yourself to be like that merchant. You're looking for something, something of value in life. What I'm saying is in Christian contentment, you found it. Now, ultimately, the nth degree here is the kingdom of heaven. I know that. It's Christ. I'm not trying to shrink it down to Christian contentment. But honestly, to some degree, we're dealing with the same thing. Contentment is a sense, an inner sense of the value of Christ as over against every other thing in in this earth. So really, in the end, we're talking about the same thing. The joy that the guy has in the treasury in the field, I think you could argue, is Christian contentment. And so also the delight that the merchant has in finding this pearl. So you found something of great value. I will give you another image, and, and I've mentioned this before, and we're going to keep talking about it. But Christian contentment is also a city with many treasures and many, uh, let's say, weak, vulnerable people that you love and, and want to protect that is worth fighting for. It's worth defending. So I want to give you a warfare mentality on Christian contentment that you could uh, see in a regular rhythm, we'll talk about this at the very end of the class, uh, not today, but in the end of the course, that you should every day come into a, 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 a state as best you can through prayer and scripture meditation of contentment in the morning, every day, and then fight for it the rest of the day. That's, that's the image I want to give you. You're going, you're, it's going to get assaulted. You, you know I'm telling you the truth. It's going to get attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The last thing Satan wants is for you to be content at the end of the day like you were at the beginning. And so he's gonna, you're going to have to fight for it. So those are various images. But now we're going to zero in on the idea of the worth and value of Christian contentment, the excellence of Christian contentment. Uh, we should make Christian contentment a lifelong goal that we are pursuing. To some degree, you can attain a certain level of Christian contentment in your quiet time every morning. But you know that it's also a lifetime goal worthy of pursuing. So why would I say that? That, that you can have a, a sweet frame of spirit in the morning and, and as best you can, you feel like you've arrived at Christian contentment on Tuesday morning. But you also know that there's a lifetime work to be done here as well. How would you see that? How would you say Christian contentment is really something you're pursuing your whole life? All right, so the real measure of Christian contentment probably is in severe affliction. I think without, without the ability to maintain a sweet, quiet, gracious frame of spirit in the midst of uh, extreme adversity, that's when I think you'll know that you have reached a, a much higher level of contentment than you might have had early in your Christian life. So this is a lifetime goal to be pursued. We know also it's not just the major trials, but honestly there's some niggly, irritating things that happen along the way that trip you up. So it's like you're ready for the big, massive trial, but apparently not ready to have some car trouble this morning, you know, or not ready to, you know, to find that you ran out of K-cups and, uh, you know, you're not going to have coffee this morning like you had planned. And you find yourself a higher level of irritability than you'd ever want to admit to any of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's amazing how even the little things can get us. All right, so if we treasure Christian contentment, if we make that a focus, how will that actually kind of shape and orchestrate the way we live our lives. Or let me ask this question. Henry Skugel said this in The Life and Goal, uh, God and the Soul of Man. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He who loves mean and sordid things does thereby become base and vile. But a noble and well-placed affection does advance and improve the spirit into a conformity with the perfection which it loves. In other words, you very much become like what you pursue. 
The thing you go after will shape your soul. If you're pursuing a vile, sordid idol, it will make you vile and sordid too. You become like what you worship. There are many verses that actually teach this, that you become like the idols you worship. So if that's the case, how would pursuing Christian contentment actually be a very excellent thing for you overall in your sanctification? Why would this be a worthwhile goal for you to pursue? How would this actually help you grow as a Christian? Yeah, I mean, when you start to think about which things are encompassed in this topic, the worth and excellency of Christ, is that involved at all here? Absolutely. That's the centerpiece. Uh, The temporary nature of the world? Yes. Your own flesh and the drives of your heart's desires, you know, apart from Christ? Yeah, that's part of it. You start to see that this is really a kind of a doorway into all there is in sanctification. Really, almost every topic will be touched on in this, in this issue. So for you to set this in front of you, say this is a, 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 a goal worthy of the rest of my life, that I could actually, like Paul, say at the end of my life, maybe not perfectly, but I have much more learned the secret of Christian contentment than I ever did at the beginning, would be worthwhile. This is something worth pursuing. Long after this Bible for Life class is done or long after you get done reading Jeremiah Burroughs' book and go on to other Christian books, this is still going to be an issue for you. And the Lord is actually going to be working on this. Whether you're working on it or not, He's going to be orchestrating circumstances that He wants you to respond well in for the rest of your life. All right, well, let's look at the excellence of Christian contentment step by step and topically, as um, Jeremiah Burroughs does. First, by contentment, by Christian contentment, we give God His due worship. Indeed, honestly, the most excellent worship that we can give. We were created to worship God. That's why we were created. Created to esteem Him and and give Him praise and glory uh, for His awesome person, His amazing works of creation and redemption. That's what we were made for. That's also what we were redeemed for. We were made for the glory of God. Would someone read for us Isaiah 43, 6 and 7? It is such a a well-known theme of Christian theology, that we were created for the glory of God. It is surprising that this is the only verse I can find in the 66 books of the Bible that openly says it. I I find that interesting. I'm going to keep looking, but I've done some word searches in my software, whatever. This is the only one I can find. It doesn't mean it's no less true. It's just woven through the fabric. I'm just talking about your proof text, you know, where you can zero it in. But here, Isaiah, uh, this is God speaking through the prophet. Bring my sons and daughters from afar. He's talking about the, uh, the reclaiming of the Jews to the promised land. Then becoming an image of, I think, gospel spread, that, that the, the journeying that's physical in the Old Testament, the pilgrimages and the regathering that's physical in the Old Testament becomes spiritual in the New. And so this gathering together, but he says there that he created us for his glory. Honestly, I don't think we need a hundred verses to say it. If it says in one verse, that's enough, right? Honestly, because he mentions his sons and daughters, the idea of created could also expand to include recreated in Christ as well. So this one verse could include everything, not just our physical creation, but also our being new creations in Christ. And so all of this was done for his glory. Now, what does that mean? We've said that so many times before, haven't we? What does it mean that we're created for God's glory? We have that almost as a slogan. We say, but what does it mean? To put God on display. I love that. 
The glory of God is the radiant display of his attributes. That's been a helpful definition for me. Radiant being like shining out, an evident or obvious display, right? And God's attributes are his uh, descriptions like uh, his mercy, his love, his power, his patience, his compassion. These excellencies of God or perfections of God. We were created to put God on display. But there's another way, too. We were created to be somewhat of an audience of God's glory or uh, um, spectators of it. We're, we're supposed to see that God's woven glory through his creation and just esteem it, right? And speak words of praise about it. You know, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Or when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, I think, what is man that you're mindful of him? And I think great thoughts about God. We were meant for that, right? So as we see the glory of God in creation, we are to think great thoughts about God and we are to speak great words concerning God. We're supposed to praise him. Uh, so we're created for his glory to display it, but also to praise him. Also Ephesians 1 and Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 4 and 6, 4 through 6 and 1, 12 say that we were... We were saved, we were redeemed in Christ for the praise of his glory or for the praise of his glorious grace. So honestly, when we get to heaven, we are going to be praising God. Let me give you a little foretaste of the sermon uh, today, all right? So you guys are the privileged ones, all right? A little subset of the congregation. We're, we're going we're gonna to be uh, in Revelation 19, 1 through 10. We're going to be looking at a fourfold hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. This is incredible praise. But the thing is, what's, what's the topic? What's being praised? If you don't know, I mean, Revelation 19.3 sums it up. Hallelujah, for the smoke from her torment rises forever and ever. And the, the smoke that's being celebrated there is Babylon. Babylon smoke is burnt, going to burn forever and ever. Praise God. It's like, wow. Well, I'm not going to fully preach the sermon right now. We'll get to that. But the thing is, it's like, that's a little strange. How can I praise God for the eternal torment of Babylon? I think this is how you do it. You realize you deserved it too. You were rescued out of it. You're humbled by that whole thing. And you got, give God the praise and the glory for your own salvation by contrast. That's the work of God. And we're going to spend eternity. Now, we, we may not be fully there right now, but you'll get there. When you're in heaven, you'll be there. And you'll just celebrate God's power and goodness in rescuing us out of that world system. So we were created for the praise of his glorious grace so we can celebrate his grace. And so we're made for that. That means that every single day you should do that. Now that you're recreated, you should be praising God and displaying God's greatness and his glory in your life. You were formed for this. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now here's the thing. God is worthy of praise in any and every situation in your life. Right? He's no less or more worthy of praise right now or in any circumstance you could ever imagine than he is at any other. He is always worthy of praise. Always. But I think that our praise is more excellent when we are, let's just go to it, when we're in the midst of extreme suffering. If you go through extreme suffering and extreme affliction and you genuinely give glory and praise to God, that will be the most excellent praise you could ever give God. You will never be more excellent and more radiant in this world than in a situation like that. 
We worship God more when we're suffering and when earthly conditions are miserable and praise Him from the heart anyway. Burroughs said this, You worship God more by this than when you come to hear a sermon or spend half an hour or an hour in prayer or when you come to receive a sacrament. These are the acts of God's worship and they are only external acts, but this is the soul's worship to subject itself thus to God, that you would submit yourself in this to God and not fight Him, but yield to Him and actually find delight in what He's doing, however painful it is for you, to find delight in it. You who often will worship God by hearing and praying and receiving the sacrament and yet afterwards be irritable and discontented, know that God does not accept such worship. In active obedience, we worship God by doing what pleases God. But by passive obedience, we worship God by being pleased with what God does. That's a gem. In active obedience, you're seeking to do what pleases God. In passive obedience, you're receiving what God has providentially decided to do in your life, and you're deciding to be pleased with it. That takes some doing, doesn't it? <laughs> and God is glorified by both. God is glorified by both. Augustine said in his confessions, He loves you too little, who loves anything together with you, which he loves not for your sake. It's a very powerful statement that he makes. In other words, if we love God and some earthly blessing, if we don't love the earthly blessing because of God or for the sake of a deeper love relationship with God, we actually are loving God too little. That's what, what uh, Augustine is saying there. We are actually being idolatrous. If we love the gift independent of the giver, then we don't love either one properly. So you need to see every earthly circumstance, every earthly gift in the hands of a loving father. And you're loving him the most you can love him. So in that case, I'm not talking about affliction, but even prosperity. Good gifts that God gives you. In the midst of that, that you say, this is really a gift from my father. And even if he didn't give it to me, or even if this gift were taken from me, I would still love him. So this is the most excellent praise you can ever give God, is Christian contentment. Conversely, on the other side, if we're able to say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. That gives God great glory. So whether you are in prosperity or in deep affliction, this is the most excellent praise. We know that, that Job's statement, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We think that's got to be one of the great moments in human history. I mean, that Job really showed his greatness and, and God rightly esteemed Job as an excellent man, maybe the finest on the face of the earth at that time. We know he still had some sin locked deep inside him and it had to come out. But at the same time, his initial reaction to extreme suffering, I mean, the death of all of his children in one day, uh, incredible. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It's an incredible statement. And so that's the most excellent praise you could ever give. Or again, Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Someone read that for us. Isn't that incredible? I mean, look at what Habakkuk is saying. Realize that blessings back in the Old Covenant are frequently spoken of as agricultural blessings, like a big you know, big crop, big harvest, bumper crop, you know, or a big herd of, of sheep or goats. That's, that was their wealth. And what is the Habakkuk saying, Dave? What is he saying in this? Despite all of these things, even if there, if I look around in my life and I don't see any temporal blessing at all, that's the language, because he goes into great detail about these agricultural blessings. If I look around and there, there's nothing going well in my life right now, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior. 
It's an incredible statement. This is an old covenant statement, but do you not see the incredible link there is to this in Paul's statement in Philippians? Philippians 4, 13. All right, what was the secret of Christian contentment? Remember what he said? I can do everything through him who strengthens me. Do you see that here in Habakkuk as well? What does he say in 319? The sovereign Lord is my strength. Do you see this consistency of scripture? It's incredible. And, and I'll be joyful in God, my savior. He has saved me from my sin. He gives me strength in the midst of very adverse circumstances and afflictions. I will be joyful in God. It takes strength to do it. Anyway, this is the most excellent praise you can ever give God. So let me ask, turn it back to you, articulate it. Why is this the greatest praise you can ever give God? The most excellent praise is in the midst of, of afflictions. You're saying, God, God's enough for me. If I have God, even if I had nothing else, and you can make that slogan, but until it actually happens, you don't really know that you, you really believe it. People can say things, but they're not true. But now you actually are living it out. He is all you need. Anything else? And for you to be able to look at it, when you start to see, could be through a diagnosis of a, maybe even a terminal illness or a chronic illness, that the Lord has actually to some degree signed you up for an opportunity to praise Him excellently. Then you're like, oh, this is going to be a major test, the greatest test of my life. Can I do it? The answer, no, of course not. But I can do everything if he gives me strength. If God, if you would give me strength, then you'll need it. Not for a moment or for an hour or even for a day, but to walk through it day after day, week after week, month after month, even year after year. Some of these trials go on for years. That's the most excellent praise. That would be almost like pretty much why God put you on earth was that you would praise him in the middle of that trial. This is the most excellent thing you ever did. Yeah, Dave, don't waste your cancer. I think he would agree. I, I haven't read the book, but I have a sense of the argument of the book. Don't waste it by complaining and by charging God with wrongdoing and by being bitter and negative. That would be a waste of the cancer. Instead, if you could just praise him and give glory and honor, God will put you up on a pedestal. You might be able to lead other people to Christ. You'll be able to strengthen your own family as they watch you walk through it. Don't waste it. That's great. Let's go on to the second point. In contentment, there is much exercise of grace. It's a typical Puritan expression. The term exercise of grace means a strengthening in our souls of the work of grace that God is doing. So grace is something that, that it's, it's, there's a strengthening of it. It may enter at a, at a lower level and then through, through strengthening become greater and greater in us. Uh, the idea of the graces of God they're exercised, they become stronger in us through adversity and suffering. James 1, 2 through 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you will, may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So I want you to see in the phrase, develops perseverance as the exercise of grace, the development of perseverance. You know, it's like you're getting stronger. You're, you're, you're in physical therapy and, and your, your injured limb or muscle is getting stronger through exercise, right? You're doing some painful exercises, but at the end of six months of physical therapy, now you can walk without pain. You're stronger. It's that you see what I'm talking about. There's an exercise here. And it's these afflictions and trials, James says, that develops perseverance. And without it, you'll be immature. You see, at the end of that, so that you may be, may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So I like to take that and 
flip it around like a photographic negative. What would be the photographic negative of mature, complete, not lacking anything? Go ahead, do it. What's the opposite of mature? Immature. Okay, incomplete and lacking things. Are you saying, is that us? Yes. <laughs> That's you and me. We are immature, we're incomplete, and we lack things. And the Lord now wants to change that in our sanctification. He wants to work in us so that at the end of a process, it may be rightly said of us that we are now mature, complete, not lacking anything. And you could say that would be a lifetime work. It is a lifetime work, but that's what, that's what James is saying. So consider it pure joy when you're enrolled in Christ's school, when you're paying the tuition and you're sitting down for those classes, those graduate school classes and suffering and all that, because he's intending to make you a mature Christian. But without the affliction, you can't. So consider it pure joy. That's what he's saying. And then 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Someone read that for us. Beautiful. Same kind of thing that James is saying here. But the idea is that your faith is... Uh, it, it, it needs to be strengthened, it needs to be enlarged, it needs to, to grow. And the image here is really of, of a crucible with a precious metal like silver or gold, and you add fire to it and it's refined. So what does that word mean to you, refined? The refining of a precious metal. Improved. Okay, it's, it's improved. How is it improved? Uh, purity. It's a matter of purity. So, Brian, what do you mean by that, purity? Yeah, so we've got impurities in our hearts and our minds. And, and you know, I don't, I don't know if I could say that your faith is impure. I mean, faith is a gift of God, etc. Um, but we are impure. We know that. Our hearts are impure. And we're not consistently believing, consistently trusting. So it's a, it's a fizzling kind of thing, like the bruised reed and the smoldering flax. You know, the smolder, the smolder is a fizzling kind of fire that God's got. You know, work of grace... There's a fire there, there's light, there's heat, but there's also smolder, there's smoke. It's, it's not what it should be. And so Jane, uh, sorry, Peter is saying that these trials purify that. So what we take is any grace that God's working in our heart. We could talk about a grace that he works in our souls. They're strengthened by adversity. They're strengthened in these trials. So uh, faith, humility, submission, thankfulness, spiritual gifts, memory. These things are all strengthened by use. And as you, as you do them, you know, you, you get stronger and stronger. Burroughs says, It is an argument of a gracious magnitude of spirit that whatsoever befalls it, yet it is not always whining and complaining as others do. But it goes on in its way and course and blesses God and, and keeps in a constant tenor whatever befalls it. Such things as cause others to be dejected and fretted and vexed take away all the comfort of their lives, make no alteration at all in the spirits of these men and women. I mean, they, they don't flinch at all in these trials. They're strong, right? Like you think about the Moravians that John Wesley watched in that, in that severe storm. And they're singing and praising God and ready for heaven. Like, Lord, it seems like we're about to drown and go to heaven. <laughs> And Wesley's like, I don't, whatever you have, I don't have it. Considered himself to be in an unconverted state, which he probably was. But you're like, how do I get to be like those Moravian men and women on that heaving ship deck? How, how can I praise and thank God and trust him? It's like, well, that's the exercise of grace that we're looking for. It's like, I want to get there. It's a process. 
And it's just that mystery of sanctification, that, that joint effort between us and the Holy Spirit. There's a cooperation here. And that's what makes it so challenging to understand. Some people cooperate well, and they grow. And some people cooperate badly, and they don't grow much. And both go to heaven. But I'm just exhorting you in this class. It's like, cooperate well. Work, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work at this grace of Christian contentment. So let me ask you, put the question to you. How are our Christian virtues more strengthened by being content in the midst of trials rather than being discontent in the midst of trials? How is contentment a strengthening of God's grace in you? That's right. I, I don't think we could imagine that any of these graces, such as thankfulness, patience, humility, are strengthened by discontent. They're actually not. You're, you're the opposite. How, would, how, how does Christian contentment strengthen the grace of humility? Let's zero in on that one. Yeah, we're going to say next week, discontent is a very arrogant spirit. It, it's a very arrogant, prideful thing to be discontent. You may not have seen how much it is, but it actually is. And you are, you are willing to challenge God and take him on and challenge his goodness towards you. And, it's, and that's arrogant. Conversely, you could well imagine somebody saying, Lord, I have perceived that I am a very um, pri- proud person. I'm prideful. I want to grow in humility. Would you make 2018 a year of humility for me? I want a year from now, Lord, I want to be an incredibly humble son or daughter. You're all laughing. What are you doing? <laughs> like, why in the world would I pray a prayer like that? So what do you mean by it? Why are you reacting like that? Why are you saying, I'm not sure I want to pray that prayer. I don't want 2018 a year of humbling. All right. Why? Yeah, it's a painful journey. And we don't really want to go through that. We would like to find some other way but I just don't think there is another way. I think that's about what James and Peter are saying. There is no other way toward maturity. You have to hurt. There just is no other way. You can imagine the physical therapist and you can barely bend your leg or whatever. And you're saying, I want to get to health, but I don't want to hurt. It's like, well, then leave. <laughs> okay, because I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> I don't mean to hurt you, but that's what the therapy is going to involve. In, in effect, we could say to God, I want to get to maturity. I want to be like Christ, but I don't want the journey to be painful. Anyway. All right. Third, by contentment, the soul is fitted to receive mercy. Fitted to receive mercy. You can imagine someone being fitted for a suit. Uh, it's really like the suit is being fitted for that individual, or you could imagine, like take the image of the rare jewel, um, a setting being prepared for the jewel. You know, the jeweler is able to come up with a setting, you know, in the engagement ring or something like that, that really shows the fire, the gem, etc. So there's a skill in putting the setting. So there's a fitting. To some degree, you have to be prepared. You have to be fit for mercy. You have to be prepared for it. No man or woman in the world is so prepared to receive more mercy as those who are uh, content. So God opposes the proud, but what? What's the second half? Gives grace to the humble. Grace always has to do with sin. So if you would be humble, God will work a work of grace in you. But if you're not being humble, he won't work grace in you. So therefore, you can see contentment is essential. It's like a, pre, a precondition. You've got to humble yourself under God's hand so that he can do a work in you. Like a vessel into which you want to pour a liquid must remain still. So we must be still under God's hand to receive uh, maximum blessing uh, from his mercies. So I saw a video of an individual is using this uh, 
this power thing that's like packing down dirt. Have you ever seen these things? You know, like you start the thing and it's like, like that. And someone handed him a drink. <laughs> and he tried to drink it. It's one of the funniest things I've seen. Is like, you know, it's like he's spraying this all over his body. And, uh, you know, that's an image here that Jeremiah Burroughs certainly didn't have. All right. But, you know, you can imagine someone with a shaking hand and you can't pour you know, the liquid into this shaking, agitated, stirred up hand. That's the image. Turbulent souls are unready for the quietness of the blessings of God. <clears throat> James 1, 5 through 8, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. But now here's your precondition. You've got to meet this condition. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Do you see the instability? He's like rocking and rolling and all over the place. And he's not stable and quiet. So he can't receive anything from God. Again, Isaiah 57 the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. I think about Elijah in that cave, run for his life after the whole contest with the prophets of Baal, and then Jezebel threatens his life, and he runs. And he's had it, he's had it with the whole thing. He wants to die. Remember, and he's laying under the broom tree and God sends an angel to give him some bread and some water and says, the journey's too much for you. And he ends up fleeing and he gets to the cave of Mount Horeb and he's in that cave and God comes to him and says, what are you doing here? It's an interesting conversation between him and God. Well, I think it's both. I think there's a doubt in your mind and heart about whether God is in the midst of it. I mean, the context of the seeking of wisdom, I think, I think you should put it together with the earlier verses right in your handout. James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, right? So it's an extreme trial you're going through. I don't think you should look at it that James has changed the subject now and he's on to some other topic. So let's put them together. You're in extreme trial. You're going through very great suffering. And now you're going to ask for wisdom. What do you think would be the topic of wisdom? You just want to learn how to, how to you know, how to make a jet engine? Is that it? I mean, or do you think there's just a focus of the wisdom that you actually might be seeking in that situation? What do you think it is? Yeah. I mean, there's one three-letter word you always ask in the middle of a trial. Why? Why didn't you heal my son? Or why did this, why is this affliction? Why is this economic, you know, why did the hurricane come through and destroy everything that we work for? Why? So you're asking God for wisdom. What is it, if you put it together then, what is James saying to you when you ask? Calm down. Be stable. See the big picture. I mean, faith. Faith isn't just like the, the prosperity gospel. It's got to do with um, uh, spiritual perceptiveness. See God. See the invisible God. And see what he's doing in the world. See everything. See past, present, future. See the whole redemptive picture. See it. And then you get quiet. See it from a heavenly perspective. You quiet down. And then, all right, now God, how does my suffering fit into that? And then all of a sudden you're able to receive it. But if you're questioning whether God is even God, or is God amongst us or not, like the Israelites did, don't do that. Don't ask, is God in our midst? How can you ask me that after the Red Sea crossing? 
How can you ask me that after you're eating manna and drinking water from a rock? Is God in our midst or not? What did you, how would you explain all this? That's very insulting to God, and he's very dishonored by, is God in our midst or not? Now, you would say, as Christians, we haven't seen all that. I would say you've seen greater than that through the death and resurrection of Christ. So you shouldn't question, does God love me? Is God in our midst? Is he in the midst of this circumstance? Don't question that. Instead, say, God loves me. He's powerful. What are you doing? And I'm ready to listen. I think that's, Rick, go ahead. Yeah, I think so. And, and to be able to have that perspective, you know, I'm going, this is really hurting me. You know, I'm going through this trial. It's hard for me. But I'm going to quiet myself under God's mighty hand. I'm going to go back over the definition of Christian contentment. I'm going to be, have a sweet, quiet, gracious, inward frame of spirit that submits to what God's doing, even delights in it. And now I'm going to ask you, Lord, would you give me more grace? Give me more mercy. Show me more wisdom. Use this trial maximally in my life. The, that person will receive a blessing. That person's ready to listen. That person's going to be trained. But the person who's rebelling and questioning and screaming and yelling, they can't receive anything. They're just unstable and there's nothing that can be poured into such a person. Yeah, that's great. And that's what Burroughs calls in another place, living on the dew instead of the rain. So there's like little secret sources of water in the midst of the dry time and you can find it. But if you, you're right. If you're all roiling and challenging God and all that, you're, you're going to miss it. Um, anyway, honestly, this is one of the basic theses of this whole course. It is very possible to go discontent to heaven. You can do that, but why do that? <laughs> I mean, why be discontent along the way? Why be discontent in your sanctification journey? Why be discontent in your service journey? I just would say you're going to be less fruitful. You're going to have less to show for God's glory on Judgment Day. You'll be in heaven, but you'll have a, a smaller reward, actually. I could say uh, Christians can go through the majority of their trials poorly and still go to heaven. We're justified by faith in Christ, not by our achievements on Christian contentment. So I, I just want to keep resting on justification by faith. In any sanctification topic, it's a glorious topic, an excellent topic, but you're, it's not going to save you. So becoming really, really good at Christian contentment is not going to earn your salvation. Your salvation's already been earned by the works of Jesus, not by your own works. So just trust in him. But if you're talking about marks of regeneration, here's a person who's never happy, they're, they're never submissive, whatever. I would say that there's good reason to question because you generally just, at the cross, you have to submit to King Jesus. If you didn't submit to King Jesus at the cross, you're not converted. So if there never was any submission, I would agree you're, the person was not converted. All right, let's go on to the next one. Contentment is fitted also to do service. So I hinted at that a moment ago. You know, we will have less to show for our lives of service to God if we're discontent people. We'll have less fruit. We could argue we'll lead fewer people to Christ. We'll, we'll counsel others effectively in life less. We will be hindered as parents raising children if we're discontent. It's just, there's just less fruit in a discontent life. Conversely, that's negative. Conversely, there's just much more fruit that comes from uh, Christian contentment, a consistent pattern. So unsteady, disturbed uh, spirits are not fit for service. It's like the Lord wants to put us in time out. Go sit down, get yourself under control. Then we'll talk about what you can do for me today. I mean, there's really, and it makes sense. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have all wisdom and all knowledge and can fathom deep mysteries, but I don't have love. Well, that's love, not contentment, but you can see they're related. If you are a roiling, angry, discontent person, how can you, how can you do anything worthwhile as a Christian? It, it's not worthwhile. It's not good service. 
So the essence of contentment is submission, quietness under God's wise and fatherly disposal. Discontent people are not that way. But the essence of service is submission to God's purposes, right? It's you saying as a servant to the king, what do you want me to do today? It's not you telling God what you will do today, right? It's you listening and saying, what is your plan for me today? The, the son did this. Jesus, I believe in his morning quiet times, effectively every day put himself under the father's hand and said, what do you want me to do today? Who do you want me to heal? What words do you want me to say? There's indications in John's gospel. He said, I only say the words the father told me to say. I always do the works he gave me to do. So what he's saying is, and, and in this, he's giving us a role model of complete submission to our father, to the king. So you can see how contentment, if it's got to do with quiet submission to the hand of God, is essential to service. Without it, we're not serving him, we're serving ourselves. Also, content people are far be better able to minister to others who are struggling with sin and with adverse circumstances. Burroughs said this, those who have unsteady, disturbed spirits, which have no steadfastness at all in them, are not fit to do service for God. But such as have steadfastness in their spirits are men and women fit to do any service. That is the reason why when the Lord has any great work for one of his servants to do, usually he first quiets their spirits. He brings their spirits into a quiet, sweet frame to be contented with anything. And then he sets them about employment. Could someone read 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5 for us? So you could almost take the word contentment and put it in for comfort. You know, um, as, as we see this supernatural gift of contentment in some other person, we know it's flowing from a heavenly source vertically. And then we're able, then we receive supernatural work of grace resulting in Christian contentment, and we're able to minister horizontally to others. Well, let's go back to the original picture of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. Remember? Unjustly accused, stripped, beaten in public, thrown in jail, put in stocks, not fed, not healed, not, not given any medicine, in total darkness, singing praise songs to Jesus, praising God. And all the other prisoners were listening to them. So let me ask a question. Why are Paul and Silas, as supernaturally content men, much readier to answer the Philippian jailer's question, what must I do to be saved, than if they had been discontent and murmuring and complaining against God? Why are they much readier to do evangelism? They are rejoicing in their salvation. One might actually think that the Philippian jailer wouldn't ask them the question. It was like, yeah, go ahead, Brenda. Yeah, I actually have... I've, thought a lot in the last week about the relationship between the fruit of the Spirit and Christian contentment. I mean, I would not say they're exactly the same thing, but I think you could pick and choose some of the attributes that Paul gives us in Galatians 5 and say these are right down the center of Christian contentment. For example, the list is love, joy, peace. Love, we could set it aside because it's just this crowning jewel of virtues. So let's just say we could imagine we'd find it in love, but let's set it aside. Do you not see joy and peace and patience in Christian contentment? Isn't that like those are the basic ingredients of it? You're peacefully joyful and patient. That's contentment. So I would say that they're almost the same thing. I, I wouldn't think there's any difference. I actually don't think you can display Christian contentment apart from being filled with the Spirit and displaying the fruit of the Spirit. They're almost the same thing. I would just say that the fruit of the Spirit, especially in adversity. That's what I would say. Fruit of the Spirit in adversity is Christian contentment. All right, let's go on. Contentment delivers from temptation. This is a very powerful insight. Let me just say it simply. Content people are very hard to tempt. Contempt, content people are very hard to tempt. Turn it around. What's the opposite? Discontent. 
discon are easy to tempt. So what that means is a spirit of discontentment is a precursor to other sins. It's, it's deadly. And so you're like, wow, I mean, I'm going to be very vulnerable to temptations if I don't get my act together and find a way to humble myself under God's hand and stop complaining and stop murmuring against him. Satan's going to come with more. He is he's ambitious toward us. Satan is, I mean. He will not stop. He will continue until he can destroy as much of your life as he can. And I'm just saying this discontent is a doorway into that. But that's negative. Speaking positively as today's, you know, the excellence. Content people are therefore the holiest people. You see? Because they're just very difficult to tempt and draw away into sin. Discontent is the essence of the devil's wandering through the world, right? It's a devilish state. Do you think that the devil is content? Does he have a sweet, quiet, gracious, inward frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal? No, hates it all. So therefore, what's he like? I think he's utterly miserable. He's filled with rage because he knows his time is short, it says in, in uh, Revelation 12. So Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, right? So in other words, you are sons of the devil. You are like him. He's talking to unconverted people. But then we are somewhat like that in our sinful state. In when we are you know, rambling through the world, roaming, discontent, no peace, no stability. That's a devilish state. That's all I'm saying. And you don't want to be like that. The more discontent we are, then the more susceptible we are to the devil's temptations. The more content we are in God's wise and fatherly disposal, the harder we are to tempt. So Burroughs said, Oh, if you would free yourself from temptations, then labor for contentment. It is the peace of God that guards the heart from temptation. <laughs> Closely related to this is an insight I gave you when I was preaching through Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 3 through 6 says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, <coughs> foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. But rather, now here's the weapon God gives you to fight all these soul-killing sins, thankfulness, thanksgiving, I'm like, I remember when I was preaching that, I said, it's like going to a five-alarm fire with a squirt gun. That's what I thought. You're giving me thankfulness, and I'm going to defeat sexual immorality, impurity, greed, and idolatry, and obscenity, and all this. I'm going to fight all that with thankfulness? Yes. So I, I began to realize that I was underestimating a deeply, richly, fully thankful heart. That if I were fully thankful to God for his blessings to me in Christ, I would not be susceptible to all these sins. I think it makes sense when you think about the sin of adultery. Wouldn't you th say it starts with discontent with your spouse? You're just not happy with what God's provided for you. And so you start to roam. Same thing with internet pornography. I mean, there's, you're not content with this provision, and so you roam. Burroughs says that content people are as easy to tempt as an iron wall is to set a light with a, with a fiery dart. Okay? Satan can shoot a fire, flaming arrow at an iron wall. What's going to happen? Bounces off. And so, you know, somebody who is, who is deeply content with what God's provided is very, very hard to tempt. So I think we can see that. We're almost done uh, in time. Let me just 
quickly go through these other ones and we'll finish. Contentment brings about abundant comfort, comforts. This should be obvious. <laughs> I mean, if you are truly, richly, deeply, fully content, you're comforted. I mean, it's almost like by definition, oh, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I am happy in Jesus. I'm happy in his provision. So there's abundant comforts that come from this. person realizes in their state, whatever he has in his life, he has in a kind of independent way. So this actually makes you more secure even in your blessings and prosperity. You've got a house, you've got, your family has a couple of cars, right? You've got this and this and this. You could just start listing blessings, right? But you know you don't need any of them to be truly, genuinely, genuinely content. Christ is enough for you. So you're not insecure, see? You're not saying, what do I got to do to protect all of these things that I've got? And if any of them are taken from me, I'm going to be discontent. It's like, no, I'm at peace. God's given me these blessings. I can enjoy them. Because Paul includes blessings in feasting, right? I know what it is to, to have plenty, to feast. And I know what it is to have nothing to eat. I can actually be content in both of those situations because I don't have to have either one. There's a, a, a strength in that and, and abundant comfort that comes from that. Contentment uh, draws, listen to this, comfort from things not possessed. This is pretty powerful. You can actually be comforted by what you don't get if you are a master of Christian contentment. I didn't say an ascended master. We're not using that kind of language. But if you have reached a high level of maturity in Christian contentment, you are incredibly skillful at deriving comfort from what you don't get or don't have yet. Two categories. Blessings that God has promised to you, but he hasn't given you yet. Ultimate being heaven, resurrection. He is, and you can get pleasure from that, even though you don't have it yet. But now here's the harder one. An earthly blessing that you have asked for and God has not chosen to give you yet, at least. Chris, how can you, how can you get contentment from that? Praise God for the no, he says to me in prayer. I asked him for it, I, and he said no. I mean, can, can Paul be content with the thorn in the flesh? He actually can. Do you see what he does with it? He says, this is actually, it is an instrument of Satan. He doesn't minimize that. But it's also a gift of God because it taught him, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So that's a powerful thing. All right. Contentment is a great blessing in the soul. That's such an obvious statement that I didn't know what Burroughs did with it. So I was like, all right, it's probably not going to make it into my book. Um, but at any rate, I think so. And then a contented man may expect reward. In other words, the more content you are consistently, the greater you will store up treasure in heaven, you know, in every circumstance, any and every circumstance. And then finally, and I love this, by contentment, you reach nearest the excellence of God. Now this we go back to the aseity of God. L listen to what Burroughs said. For this word, this is translated, content signifies a self-sufficiency. A contented man is a self-sufficient man. And what is the great glory of God but to be happy and self-sufficient in himself? Indeed, he is said to be all-sufficient, but that is only a further addition of the word all rather than of any matter. To be sufficient is all-sufficient. Now, this is the glory of God, to be sufficient, as sufficiency in himself. Now, look down a little bit lower. Suppose there were no creatures in the world and that all the creatures in the world were annihilated. God would remain the same blessed God that he is now. He would not be in any worse condition if all the creatures were gone. 
and neither would a contented heart. So we become most like God in this discipline of Christian contentment. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the things that we've learned today. Thank you for the excellence of Christian contentment. And I pray that you would strengthen each one of us to fight the good fight and finish the race and keep the faith. And now, as we go to public worship, Lord, strengthen us and make us ready uh, to hear your word and, and make us ready to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.